How's everybody doing this morning? Good, 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 good. So um, last night I was talking, I'm, I'm a, I, I say this and I get booed every time I say it, I'm a Patriots fan. And um, yeah, see, doesn't that make you feel good? Uh, <laughs> and last night about 10.30 the text started rolling in, right? <laughs> Everyone sending me texts. Finally got yours, ha ha, you know, all these texts rolling in. Facebook posts, and it was, it was great. So um, I got to say, if they're going to lose to anybody, I was happy that they lost to the Titans. Really, really good game. Now, here's the thing. Listen, you guys can thank Kyle and I. We don't want to take all the credit for the Titans going to the second round of the playoffs, but their season was awful until Kyle and I went to that Chargers game that they played. We were in the stands, and that was that miraculous finish, right? They were at the goal line, and the Titans held the Chargers, and ever since then, we've been winning, and that happened to be the game uh, that I was at. So um, I don't want to take all the credit for that, but um, you guys are welcome. So <laughs> that year that the, uh, that the Peyton, uh, Patriots miraculously beat uh, Atlanta, I had prayed for them at all four services. I prayed for Tom Brady, and they said it was the greatest comeback of all time. And I was like, you know, hey, I don't want to take all the credit for that either, but he owes me one. So I did not pray for him yesterday, and that was probably my fault. So, okay, uh, you guys don't want to talk about football. We're in church. So we are in the book of Malachi. We're in an Old Testament book. It's our second one in a row. We did Ecclesiastes, and then we moved to the very end of the, the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, which is very, very short, but very, very impactful. There's a lot of information in here, written about 2,500 years ago, roughly about 2,400 and a half years ago. Um, but it's interesting, from a book written so long ago, it is extremely relevant, extremely relevant to our nation. And I'm not trying to beat up on the United States, but kind of the tide that has turned in our country sounds a lot like what was going on with the people of God during Malachi's time. And we talked last week, we talked about that if we're going to get anything out of a relationship with God, we have to invest in it. And we often get frustrated at God and we shake our fist at God and say, well, God, why didn't you do this or that? Or why didn't you help me with my marriage or help me with my finances or whatever the case may be? When in reality, we have not given those things to God. So God cannot help us with things that we will not let him help us with. And so we can't get out what we never put into it, is what we talked about. Now, this week, we're going to talk about this. We're in chapter two this week, and we're going to talk about this, that we have to watch ourselves carefully. I pulled that straight from the end of this chapter. It says it twice, to watch yourselves carefully. And we'll talk about what that means. But in, in, in essence, it means this, that we have to live life very intentionally. We have to live it on purpose. We have to be awake and alert, and sober-minded, and clear in our thought. We have to depend on God. We have to do this on purpose, okay? Because a good relationship with God, a good relationship with each other, it doesn't happen by accident, right? We have to do it on purpose, to watch ourselves carefully. So you should have got a notes handout when you walked in. It has everything I'm going to say in there, I believe. Uh, everything should be on the screens if you didn't get a notes handout. If you have a smartphone, everything should be on the experience community app. If you click on service times and sermon notes, very, very handy. All the scriptures there, all the notes are there. So you should be able to follow along pretty well. So I'm going to pray. We will jump into this and um, we'll kind of see where God takes us a little bit. It's, it's going to really hit on church leadership today. So 
you know, not only did my football team lose last night, but the Bible's going to beat me up a little bit this morning, so you can revel in that as well, if you like, if you're an awful person. So, uh, (laughs) I'm just joking. But we should pray, shouldn't we? You guys should pray for me, and uh, we'll, we'll get through this, all right? Lord Jesus, God, we love you. We thank you. Lord, I love this church. God, I thank you so much that we can laugh together. I thank you, God, that we can get into your word and study it together. I thank you, God, that we can be open and honest, and um, we're family, Lord, and we thank you for that. I pray that you keep your hand on my family this morning. Bless our church, God. We also pray that you bless every church in our city. That's our extended family, God. We pray that you bless the churches that we work with all over the country, the ones that we work with outside of the country. We pray that everything we do today, God, that it makes us better, that it that brings us closer to you, and we pray that it honors you, God. Lord, we love you, we thank you, and we pray all these things in your son's name, God, in Jesus' name, amen. So very last book of the Old Testament, we're in chapter two of the book of Malachi. This is Malachi speaking, okay? He says, therefore, this decree is for your priests. If you don't listen, and if you don't take it to heart to honor my name, says the Lord of armies, I will send a curse among you, and I will curse your blessings. In fact, I've already begun to curse them because you're not taking it to heart. Look, I am going to rebuke your descendants, and I will spread animal waste over your faces, the waste from your festival sacrifices, and you will be taken away with it. Then you will know that I sent you this decree so that my covenant with Levi, I'll explain who that is, may continue, says the Lord of armies. Yes, you heard that correctly. God just said he was gonna wipe animal feces in people's faces. So Malachi was warning religious leaders, the ones during his time, that if they do not listen to God and if they do not start honoring God, they're going to be cursed. Now, we talked about last week, curse in this context is not like the curses of the Old Testament. This is a God removing himself, and that makes us destined to fail. That's what curse means in that context, that we are destined to fail. Now, listen, the Bible does talk about God cursing people. If you go, especially back in the Old Testament with Pharaoh and the Egyptians and the Exodus, and you talk about all the different curses that were sent. So God does those things. He does sometimes curse. But here's the thing. It is enough of a curse just for God to remove himself from our lives. The reason why is if we're left to our own devices, we're destined to fail. We're going to screw it up. We're going to eat ourselves, eat ourselves alive. So when we choose to not be a part of God or have a relationship with God, we're essentially cursed. We are destined to fail because we're dependent on him, or we should be. We need him. So we have to determine to do the right thing. We have to determine to want to be close to God. So the people of God were given a choice, but they were not taking it seriously. God says, you're not taking it to heart. You're not considering this. And so because of that, God was not going to bless their lives. Now at this point, God is talking to priests, ministers, pastors, people who worked for the temple, or you know, we call it a church now. He was specifically talking to them. And he said, because you're not honoring God, I'm gonna take away your blessings. Now the specific blessing that God was talking about to the priests was their income. Just like my income now is from you. You guys give to the church, and because that, me and the other people that work here, 
you pay our salaries. Now that should humble a pastor. And, and guys, I'm just gonna be transparent with you. The group of people that I don't like being around the most is other pastors. And the reason why is most of them have taken their position for granted. They feel like the church is to serve them and, and they feel very entitled and that's not how a minister should feel. It is a blessing that we get to do this for a living and that should humble us. But the reason why God was cursing them is because they were entitled now. And because they had been such poor leaders, the church, the, the people in the church didn't want to give to the church. So their blessing was already being taken away because their livelihood is about to be affected, right? People don't trust the church enough to give. Therefore, the people that work for the church, they can't make any money. And so God takes it a step further. And he says, if you don't change, I'm going to wipe animal waste on your face. So the feces of the animals that, had, that were being sacrificed in the temple, it had to be disposed of very, very carefully. The priests could not touch it with their skin. If they did, not only did they have poop on their skin, they were ceremonially unclean. They could not do that. But because of their unfaithfulness, God wasn't only saying, you're going to touch this waste, but I'm going to smear it on your faces, and I'm going to discard you like you discard that waste. Now, of course, this is a metaphor. God's not going to extend his hand down from heaven and literally wipe poop on people's faces. That's not what he's talking about. It's a reference to that God is going to humble the arrogant, especially people who are arrogant in the name of God, that he is going to humble those kinds of people. He is also reminding us that our actions have consequences, that when we do certain things, there are ramifications for those things, okay? So there are consequences to our actions. So the bottom line is we have to make sure that we're humble, all of us, not just pastors and ministers and church leaders. Everyone who follows God needs to make sure that we are being humble. So again, the waste of the sacrificial animals touching the priests would have made them unfit to do their job. They would have been removed from their position. And God was telling Malachi to tell the people that if they get removed from their position, I'm going to find some people who do honor me and who do what I want them to do. Now listen, God is not looking for us to be perfect. God does not expect perfection from any of us in this room. What God expects out of us is humility. That when we are imperfect, we say, God, I'm imperfect. I need help. That's what God wants. And if we will live repentant, humble lives... Not only will God forgive us, God can use us and he can change us. He can work with humility. He will not work with arrogance. It says that God pushes away from arrogance, okay? All right. My covenant with Levi was one of life and peace, and I gave these to him. It called for reverence, and he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and nothing wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and integrity and turned many from iniquity or a life of sin. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should desire instruction from his mouth, because he is the messenger of the Lord of armies. You, on the other hand, have turned from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have violated the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of armies. 
So I, in turn, have made you despised and humiliated before all the people because you're not keeping my ways, but are showing partiality in your instruction. So if you've never heard of Levi, Levi was one of the 12 tribes of Israel, right? One of the sons of Jacob. Now, what made him unique from the other 11 tribes is God had ordained the tribe of Levi to be the ministers, the pastors, the priests. And through the ministry of the tribe of Levi, all the people of God received not only salvation, right, because they heard the truth, they heard the word of God, they accepted it, they followed it, they were saved. Not only did they get saved, but they had peace from that salvation and from that relationship with God. Now, what God expected from his people after they were saved was a relationship. Now, this sounds like a win-win to me, right? So God saves us, and in turn, we get to hang out and be in a relationship with God forever. That's a win for us both ways. But that's what God expected from his people when he saved them. I want a relationship. I, I want you to do what I want you to do, and, and, and I want to be close to you. That's what they expected, right? So there's two levels to this. The first one is the level of the teacher or the preacher or the pastor or the priest or, or whatever we call it, right? It's the one that is teaching the word of God. It says the lips of the priest should guard knowledge. Basically what that means is someone in, in my position, right, that does what I do, my sole job is to teach this, to guard what is in this book, to teach the truth. So that's what the Levites were called to do, to teach the Bible, to speak the Bible and to speak righteously, to live the Bible, to live righteously, and to tell people and to do it themselves to turn away from sin. That is the role of the pastor, the priest, the spiritual leader, okay? Those things. The problems arise when spiritual leaders neglect to teach this book. When we don't teach this book, we don't know how to speak righteously or live righteously, and we don't know what sin is, so we don't know how to turn away from it because we're ignorant to what it is. So the problem comes when people that have the kind of platform that I have do not teach the Word of God. And it is a huge problem in our culture, in our nation, right now. So I have a responsibility, all people who call themselves ministers of God have a responsibility to guard the knowledge of the truth, to teach the truth, live the truth, speak the truth, turn away from sin, and help others turn away from sin, okay? The congregation also has a responsibility. So it is my responsibility to speak the truth, it is your responsibility to want to receive the truth, to not just hear it, but a desire to live it. And the problem with so many quote-unquote Christians now is, one, we are a culture of offense. We get offended by everything. And Christians do it too. Went to the movies, saw a secular movie, and there were secular things in it, boycotting it, right? Went to Home Depot, found out the CEO is not a Christian, boycotted. Went to Starbucks and they didn't put a cross on my cup, boycotted, right? That's what we do. So we can't drink any coffee, we can't buy any tools, we can't see any movies, we can't talk to anyone, we just need to create a bubble, right? Roll around like a bunch of gerbils so no you know, evil germs will infect us. But that's what we do because we're so offended. We expect non-believers to act like believers. 
It's not going to happen because they're not believers. And they're never going to become believers if you stay away from them and boycott them all the time. Right? We're just talking real this morning. Sorry. (laughs) But we're always offended. We've also become a Christian people that are extremely selfish and entitled, where we only want to hear certain truths. Man, I love hearing the stuff about how we should hug each other all the time, but when you get into my personal life and tell me how to live, like, I don't want to hear that stuff. That's why we typically just post those little three-minute snippets of those pastors that talk about how wonderful we are. Listen, if we were so wonderful, we wouldn't need God. We're not so wonderful. We're awful without him. The Bible says there's no good in us apart from God. We desperately need the Lord. And we need his instruction, we need his wisdom, and we need this word. What we have fallen to is what's called moral relativism. And a lot of Christians have fallen to that. Well, that truth works really good for you, but it doesn't work for me. My truth is different than your truth. I hate to break it to you. The truth doesn't change just because your taste does. And the truth doesn't change just because cultures come and go. The truth has always remained constant. The problem is, though, is there's a lot of people that have the kind of, of pulpit or, or responsibility that God has called me to, and the problem is, is they have partiality with their instruction because the leadership of God's people picked and chose what they liked and what they didn't want to teach. The nation became chaos, and in turn, actually, no one had any respect for the office of priest or pastor anymore because the pastors didn't have any spines And we see this in our day, don't we? The Methodist church is doing it right now. But we also need to be careful not to constantly bash the church because Christianity has done a lot. Just because there are cracks right now in our our foundation does not mean that Christianity is altogether bad. Listen, here's the thing. You cannot judge a faith by its congregants. You have to judge a faith by its religious text. And this text is perfect and God is perfect. And quite frankly, the church has done a lot of amazing things. Well, man, you oppressive Christians, tell me how we've been oppressive. Uh, Well, the Spanish Inquisition. Okay, tell me something in the last thousand years, right? I know that we've started universities. I know that we've started hospitals. I'm not talking about just now. I'm talking about those institutions were created by the church. The university, the hospital, the orphanage. I know that virtually every nonprofit in this city is Christian-based, I know that we've done a lot for our communities. No one gives like Christianity. Nobody. We do so much around the world that is amazing. So we need to be careful not to get on kind of this like church bashing box because I don't think that honors God either. The bottom line is we're all responsible. Now I believe because the Bible teaches that spiritual leaders will be judged more harshly because the Bible says that in James 3.1. But here's the thing, guys. When all of us stand in front of Jesus Christ, you're not gonna be able to blame me for your lack of relationship with Jesus. You're not gonna be able to blame your parents. You're not gonna be able to blame Barack Obama or Donald Trump. You're gonna have to take ownership for that. You wanna know why? Because all of you in this room have access to the same book that I have access to. And though it is my job to teach you this book, it is your job to follow along and if I teach you heresy, to look at me and say, that's wrong. That's your job. The Bible says that we are to all work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. That means when we stand in front of Christ and he says, tell me what you did with your life, Corey. Well, I had a pastor that really upset me one time. We're not talking about him. We're talking about you, Corey. What did you do? We have to work out our own salvation. This means that we're going to be held accountable, right, for our relationship with God or lack thereof. All of us are gonna be held accountable.
All right, next part. Don't all of us have one father? Didn't God create us? Why then do we act treacherously against one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has acted treacherously and detestable acts have been done in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's sanctuary, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob the man who does this, whoever he may be, even if he presents an offering to the Lord of armies. So how we treat others matters. Um, Malachi points out that all people were created in the image of God, all people. But yet people were treating, the people of God, were treating other people treacherously. So basically, when we treat other people poorly, it's like we're treating God poorly. Jesus even talks about this in Mark chapter 12. When the Pharisees walk up to him, they say, Jesus, what's the most important law? He said, well, that's easy. Love God with all your heart, mind, and your soul. And then he said, but the second one is close to it. Love others like you love yourself, right? And that fulfills the whole law of the Bible, right? To love God and love people around us. Listen, if we get it in our mind that all people are made in the image of God, we will learn to treat people differently. Well, Corey, what about Muslims? They're made in the image of God. Doesn't mean we agree with them theologically, but they are made in the image of God, and we are to love them, we are to respect them, we are to treat them with dignity. What about people that live in a sexual way that we don't agree with? We may not agree with them, but they are made in the image of God, and we are to love them and respect them, and we are to go out of our way to honor them and treat them in a way that is, is dignifying. All people, right? All people are made in the image of God. And if we would get that in our minds that all people are made in the image of God and that God loves all people, doesn't mean we have to agree with them. doesn't mean we have to condone what they do, but it also means that we don't have to condemn them, right? And it means that we don't have to speak poorly to them and we don't have to treat them badly. And so what God was saying is, is you treat other people treacherously and detestable, detestable. Treachery implies unethical or abusive. More likely like in business, right? When we cheat people in business or we lie to them or we take advantage of them, that's, that's not okay. When we talk about detestable, that's a little bit deeper. That's talking about like your family and your friends and your spouse. So how we work matters. How we do business matters. How we treat our, our husband or our wife matters. How we raise our kids matter. And the reason it matters is if we say we love God, but we can't love people around us, we don't love God. Because the Bible says, how can you love a God that you can't see when you can't even love the people around you that you can see? So there's so many people that claim to follow Jesus, and they are just awful to other people, and they don't love Jesus, at least not the way that they think they do. Something's wrong there. Malachi also talks about marrying people outside of your faith. Now, again, this is uncomfortable, but the Bible talks about it. Malachi says that a lot of people had married daughters of foreign gods. So he's specifically talking about men, but it, it works both ways, who had married women who didn't follow the same God that they followed. What this basically means is that Christians are to marry other Christians. Guys, I, some denominations, you know, like uh, the, the Pentecostal church that I got saved in, they thought everyone was going to hell except for them. So well, if you marry a Baptist, the Bible says not to do that. That's not what that's talking about. 
Baptists and Pentecostals worship the same God, right? So if you're a Church of Christ background and you marry someone from a, ba- it, it, it can work. You may disagree on musical tastes or lack thereof, but <laughs> it, it can work. You worship the same God. <laughs> There's some of those stories in here, I bet, right? So 2 Corinthians 6.14 also echoes this. Paul talks about this, right? You have to marry someone that has the same faith as you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, though, it brings up another interesting conundrum that a lot of people probably found themselves in during this time, that there would be a couple that was already married, one of them would become a Christian, and then what do you do? Well, Paul said, don't, don't divorce your spouse. You're your spouse's best chance of also becoming a believer. So stay married to your spouse. Love them. Treat them with honor and dignity and share the gospel with them in the hopes that they will also become a believer. That's what we're instructed to do. Now, what Malachi does not do and what the Bible does not do is condemn other cultures. What that means is this. Some people have used different parts of the Bible to justify racism. Well, you know, white people can't marry black people and and Americans can't marry people from other countries. And that is not what the Bible talks about at all. In fact, one of the greatest leaders of the Bible and one of the biggest contributors to the Bible, Moses, was married to an Ethiopian woman, a a very dark-skinned woman. And he was not an Ethiopian. He was not an African. And so it's it's not that, that different colors are wrong. It's not that different cultures are wrong. But we cannot marry outside of our religious beliefs. That's what the Bible talks about. So I would dare say most of us in this room do not struggle with racism, but I think we need to be very aware that those things can easily creep in and we need to make sure that they are not welcomed in our lives. And so Malachi says that when we marry people outside of our religion, that we're to be cut off from the family of God. Now that's not because God doesn't love people that that don't worship him. That doesn't mean that God doesn't love people that marry people that don't worship him. What it means, though, is this. If God gives us a direct command, do not do this, and we do it anyways, we're not followers of God anyways. We're not not in the family of God anyways. It's like so many people that claim to be Christians, but they never pray, they never read their Bible, they don't do anything that the Lord tells them to do. Let's just be honest. You're not a Christian, right? Right? I'm a follower of Jesus. No, you're not. You don't, you, don't know, you don't even know what Jesus wants you to do. You don't care to know. So let's just be honest, right? And so what this is talking about is if we blatantly disregard God's instructions, it's, you're not in the family anymore, okay? Next part. Now I'm gonna stop one verse short at the end of this, okay? He says, this is another thing you do. You are covering the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping, with groaning, because he no longer respects your offering or receives them from your hands. And you ask why? Because even though the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, you have acted treacherously against her. She was your marriage partner and your wife by covenant. Didn't God make them one and give them a portion of spirit? What is the one seeking? Godly offspring? So watch yourselves carefully so that no one acts treacherously against the wife of his youth. If he hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord of God, says the Lord God of Israel, he covers his garment with injustice, says the Lord of armies. Therefore, watch yourselves carefully and do not act treacherously. Twice that it says that, okay? So he says, this is another thing that you do. God was telling his people that a lot of people would flood the church 
and they would cry and they would weep over the altar and say, God, why aren't you accepting my life? Why aren't you accepting the way I do things? Why aren't you accepting my sacrifices? Why aren't you answering my prayers? And the reason why God wasn't honoring their prayers or changing their circumstances or helping them is because they were really not submitted to God at all. Many times people come up to me and they say, well, why isn't God answering my prayers? Well, the first passage that pops in my head is from James chapter five, that the prayers of a righteous person avail much. That teaches us that the prayers of an unrighteous person don't avail much. They're not very effective. What that means is this. We need to make sure that we don't have any sin in our lives, so before we start asking for stuff, we need to make sure that we take care of our offenses against God, our sin. The other thing is, we only receive from God what he wants for us, so we need to pray in his will. If our prayers are not being answered, maybe there's some sin that needs to be dealt with, and maybe we're not praying in God's will. That's why. So these are other things that they were doing. And just like in Malachi's time, many of us claim to worship and follow God, but we're not living dedicated lives and we don't repent for sin. A lot of these preachers that that you guys like share their snippets on Facebook, I rarely hear them talk about addressing sin, right? They talk about all the blessings of God, but there are no blessings of God if we don't deal with our sinful nature. And repentance is not just saying, God, I'm sorry. That's a portion of it. And when we genuinely say, God, I'm sorry, I believe God genuinely forgives. But there's another side of repentance. The true definition of repentance is to change the way we think and act. What does that mean in practical terms? If you cheat on your wife, right? Let's not even go that far. Let's say you look at porn, right? You look at porn and then you say, God, I'm sorry I looked at porn. But then the next night, you bring the laptop home and you do it again. And then you do it again. And you do it again. Now listen, I know there's addiction. I know there's struggles. But if we don't take any steps to stop looking at the porn, it's not repentance. And what happens is, if we don't step away from evil, listen, we're going to learn to justify evil. We're going to stop asking for forgiveness. We're going we're to rationalize it. Well, I work hard and I'm a good man in all these other ways and I can do this, right? I can get, I, I, this is okay. It's just this one thing that I do. So we have to live truly repentant lives because if we don't, our hearts are gonna become hardened and we're going to adopt sin as a normal part of our life. And what we tend to do, and God brings up marriage, is that we tend to hurt the people closest to us. The selfish tears of God's people, they weren't getting them anywhere with God. Why? Because they were unfaithful to God. They were unfaithful to the community around them. They treated people like garbage. And they treated their spouse like garbage. They were unfaithful. So verse 15 mentions, and guys, this is going to be uncomfortable, but we have to talk about it. The Bible talks about that it's one man, one woman forever, right? That it is to be one partner until death do you part. But we have to walk carefully through this, don't we? Because divorce is messy. It's messy, it's complicated, it's sensitive. The lines of where a Christian should be justified to divorce and the Bible are a little blurry, right? I know Matthew 7 is pretty clear about infidelity, but just because one uh, commits infidelity doesn't mean you have to get divorced, but you have the right to get divorced. So I think if you study divorce enough in the Bible, 
I think there are three pretty clear reasons why one can get out of a marriage. Infidelity, physical and emotional and mental abuse, and chronic addiction. I think the Bible supports those three things, desertment, abuse, and infidelity. But we give up on marriage way too quick, guys. Have women come into my office, well, my husband doesn't listen to me. That's abusive. That's not abusive. He's just kind of dumb sometimes, right? (laughs) And there's so many things that come up, and I'm like, people give up on marriage way too easily. And so God hates divorce. The Bible says that more than once. Now listen, that doesn't mean that God hates people who get divorced. Yes, God intended for marriage to be a permanent thing, that when two people stand in front of a pastor and they stand in front of a congregation and they stand in front of God himself and they make a covenant, a promise, that we are gonna stay together until death do us part through bad, through good, through everything, right? A lot of us in this room have said those words. God takes those words very, very seriously. But he also knows, because we're sinful, that there is going to be divorce. So why does God hate divorce? God hates divorce because divorce hurts. I'm a product of divorce. I have not been divorced, but my parents got divorced when I was about 11, 12, and it's hard. There are still effects to that. Statistically, over half of you in this room have either been divorced or been affected by divorce. A lot of us, and you know, whenever people say, well, it it was a good, clean divorce, there's no such thing. Ask your kids, right? It's hard. It's extremely difficult. So God doesn't hate you. God doesn't hate your children. God doesn't hate the people that get divorced. But he hates the action of divorce because it hurts you. And God loves you and God doesn't want you to hurt. So the point is, is that we need to work hard at marriage. Malachi says, watch yourselves. Guys, I've been with my wife. We've been married 15 years. We dated for seven. So we've been together for 22 years. And it hasn't always been easy. It's tough. And so when the Bible says, watch yourself carefully, that means men, you need to be careful where your eyes go. You need to be careful not to bring the laptop home and sit there at two o'clock in the morning. You need to be careful to make sure that you don't flirt with that woman at the office or whatever the case may be. Women, you need to be careful that if you're not getting enough affirmation from your husband and that little slick weasel guy at your office keeps telling you you're pretty, you need to be careful to like get another cubicle or maybe get another job or just get that guy fired for harassment or whatever the case may be, right? We need to be cautious, we need to be careful because the devil wants to tear apart our marriages. And there are numerous passages in the Bible that tell us how to treat our spouse, right? Respect your husband, love your wife like Jesus loves the church. But our biggest problem is is we have treated marriage very flippantly. We've become very, very selfish and nonchalant about marriage. And we need to remember this is a huge spiritual transaction. It is a big, big deal. But we need to look at the bigger picture because right now all you single people are like, yeah, it's not me. Well, here's how it relates to you. 1 John 4.20 says that if we can't love and treat other people well that we can see, how can we love a God that we can't see? So whether you're single in this room or whether you're married in this room, we're all called to be married to God. And if we cannot treat other people well, this marriage cannot be healthy. So there's two sides of it, right? Yes, we have to love God first, but because we love God, we should want to love people made in the image of God. And if we can't do that, we can't be married to him. So let's talk about this phrase, watch yourselves carefully. You know know what can happen? The devil is not like Hollywood portrays the devil. It's not like the movie Legend, right? Tim Curry kicks down the door, big old horns, pitchfork. 
It's not like Hellboy, you know. It's not what the devil looks like. If the devil were to walk in the room right now, he wouldn't be like a big fire-breathing dragon. Everyone fornicate, blowing fire all over the place, right? (laughs) If the devil were to walk in the room right now, it says in Genesis chapter three that he is more subtle than anything else. What the devil does is he looks for little bitty opportunities to kind of slide in. The devil, it's not his style to kick the door down, right? It's his style to just kind of weasel in. He sees a little crack, right? He sees a woman looking at a tree and he walks up and says, you ever had that? You ever had that fruit? It'll make you like God. That's how the devil works. Genesis chapter three, very, very subtle. What that means for you and I is this. If we are not watching our lives carefully, it just takes a little bit of a crack in our armor for the devil to creep in. And what he does is he starts to tear us down bit by bit, relationship by relationship, hopelessness by hopelessness. He starts to get into our lives. He starts to get us to question what we believe. And he starts to question our relationships and our interactions with others. And he starts to make us self-centered. And little bit by little bit, he starts to steal, kill, and destroy. That's what he does, right? So we have to be careful. We have to be cautious. That means what we watch matters. What we listen to matters. Who we're around matters. What we think matters. That's why the Bible says capture your thoughts, right? Because the devil is slick. He's subtle. The big key to this, though, is do we want to live righteously? If we have no desire to do what God wants us to do, the devil has free range. We must know or want to know God's will for us. We must be diligent. We must work hard to live righteously. We have to choose to do the right thing, even when people aren't looking. We have to want to be righteous people. In order to do that, guys, we have to be honest. We have to find someone that we can confess to. The Bible says, confess your faults one to another. We have to be honest about our struggles. Man, if you struggle with lust, A, almost everyone around you has at one point, you need to find someone that you trust and say, I struggle with this, hold me accountable, help me. We need to be honest with God about it. You ever just been straight up honest with God? I'll tell you something about a year ago that I was really honest with God about. I would find myself getting envious of other people. I work really, really hard, I work a lot, and God has blessed us, but there are sometimes you wanna do things that you just don't have the, the money or the freedom or the time to do, and you see that other people that don't work as much as you, at least from my perception, get to do these things, and I found myself getting envious. Guys, that's a sin. It's a sin for me to be envious. And I remember praying in my office and going, God, I'm envious. I had to be honest, but you know what God did with me about a year ago? is because I was honest with my struggles, God said, ah, I can work with that. You're humble now, right? You've acknowledged that you have a problem. I can fix that problem. But until we're honest about our struggles, we're gonna be in bad shape. So we have to truly repent. We have to confess it. We have to ask God's forgiveness. Now listen, and then we gotta step away from that sin. God, forgive me for my my lust. Okay, I do forgive you. Step away from it. What does Jesus say to the woman caught in adultery, right? You have no accusers, you're forgiven. Now don't do it again. Get away from it, right? Change the way you think and act. That's what repent means. Change the way you think and act. 
We must love God. We must choose to love God. We must also choose to love others. You have to want to love people because most of the time we're not very lovable. We often pick on younger generations. You know, they're glued to their phone and they're selfish and they're self-absorbed. Man, it's all generations right now. My wife and I, we, we, our 15-year anniversary is in October, but we just took a trip uh, last week. We just went out to Asheville and went to the Biltmore, and I told my wife one day I'm going to build her 180,000 square foot home. And we walked around the Biltmore and, and uh, went and got a cup of coffee. And I walked into this coffee shop, Starbucks, because I have problems. And I walked into Starbucks, and it was mostly older people in there. I'm talking 60s, 70s, 80s, older people. Walked in, and all of them were on their phones, not talking to the people around them. You're in a coffee shop, a place designed for conversation. Nobody, right? Everyone's self-absorbed, and my wife and I are sitting there talking. This woman walks up, and there's not enough water in my oatmeal. Oh, God. You know, like, and people are so self-absorbed and so mean to each other. And I sat there in that coffee shop, and I told my wife, you have to want to love people. You have to, man, you have to want to love me. If you spend enough time around Corey Trimble, Sometimes it's taxing, right? Like, you have to want to love me. And so we have to choose not only to love God, but to love other people. Here's why this is so important. Here's why watching our lives is so important. There are two lions that the Bible talks about. One is actually not a lion. It says he's like a lion. Now, I'm gonna get all, all, all preachy on you for a second. The reason why we have to take our lives seriously the reason why we have to be diligent, the reason why we have to watch how we live is because we have an adversary. We have an enemy. I know we don't like to talk about him, but he's real. Hell is real, the devil is real, evil is real. And that devil, Satan, right? He is always looking for a way into our lives so he can steal, kill, destroy. That's what the Bible says. He wants to tear apart your marriage, he wants to tear apart your relationships and your family. He wants to plant the seed of hopelessness and despair in you. He wants to steal your peace and your joy and your contentment. And let me tell you this, and I'm not trying to sound crazy, but the devil never sleeps. He doesn't take a break on Friday when you want to go get plastered with your girlfriends and then come into church on Sunday and repent. He does not take a break on Fridays. He does not sleep. That means we have to be, as it says in 1 Peter 5, 8, sober, vigilant, that we have to be awake and alert. That's why getting drunk is a sin, because bad, evil things happen when we're intoxicated. That's why you should be against smoking marijuana. Uh-oh. Because whenever your train of thought is compromised, it opens up a door. Amen, right? We still believe this, right? Okay. I know CBD is the new savior of the world, but Jesus Christ still surpasses that, right? Anyways, the devil never sleeps. The devil never sleeps. But let me tell you something encouraging. Neither does the true lion. What that means is this. Sometimes the Christian life is like sitting on a bench press with more weight than you think you can hold. You hold it up and you know that if you let go, it's going to choke you. Sometimes that's what the Christian experience is like. And I'm not trying to scare you. I sat in Starbucks, another Starbucks, with a very good friend of mine the other day. 
And this, this, this very good friend of mine sent me a text on New Year's, and he's like, dude, I am struggling. I said, well, let's get together. And the analogy that we came up with is sometimes this Christian life, it's like you're just doing everything you can just to keep the weight off your neck. But you know what we forget? God doesn't take a break from us. God's always right there next to the bench. Hey, just say my name and I'll help you lift that weight. Just call on me and I'll help you get it up. Reach out to your brothers and sisters, the church, the family that I gave you. And as Galatians 6.1 says, bear each other's burdens and fulfill the law of Jesus Christ. Like God doesn't sleep. So if we need him, we just have to call on his name. If we would pray, if we would petition him, if we would break open the word of God. I don't know if any of you have ever been in this place. Right before I started this church, my wife and I had nothing and we had no one. When I say we had nothing, we were broke. I mean, counting pennies to get gas to go to work broke. Broke. I remember I was so frustrated and my mind was so convoluted that I couldn't even pray. So what I would do, because I knew it was important that I was close to God, I would go out to the greenway out by the old Fort Golf Course. I would break open the book of Psalms and out loud on the greenway, I would just read the Psalms. People probably thought I was insane. I didn't care. But the word gave me encouragement. When I prayed this word, when I read this word, when I got into this, God says, I'm gonna be there for you. God is listening, he's awake, he's intent, he's focused on us. The Bible says he knows every hair on our head and he knew us before we were even knit together in our mother's womb. He knows everything about us. He never sleeps. Do we have an enemy? Heck yes, we have an enemy. He's a worthy enemy. Strong, conniving, deceitful, sly, subtle. Yes, we have an enemy. And he's never sleeping because he wants to absolutely rip us to shreds. But we also have God. We have a much stronger ally than we have an adversary. And if we would learn to pray, if we would learn to read, if we would learn to just think on God and let him capture these evil thoughts that creep into our head, if we would surround ourselves with community, we can keep the weight up. We can, we can not only sustain, I say this all the time, the Bible says we can be more than overcomers. We can more than do it. We can grow. We can be sanctified. We can be set apart by God. You're not alone. You're not alone. But we have to humble ourselves enough to call on his name. If we would call on his name, the Bible says, all that call on his name will be saved. You will be saved. You will. I do not know where you're at. But I know that all of us, if you're a Christian long enough, there's gonna come a time where you're feeling like you're keeping that weight just above your throat. That's why we have the church. That's why we have the help of the Holy Spirit. That's why God is a personal God, because he knows without him we can't keep it up forever. Would you bow your heads with me, please? If you are in this room and, and you do not have a relationship with God, up here on my right, your left, Pastor Mike is up here. If, if maybe you're in this room and you're curious, you have questions, you, you don't really know what the next step is or what you should do, why don't you come up here and talk to Mike? He would love to talk with you. <clears throat> we also have men and women on both sides of the stage. You know, it's all fine and good to, to just be one-on-one -on -one with God, but God wants us to be in community as well. 
Maybe you need to come up to the front and you just need a brother or a sister to put their hands on your shoulder or hold your hand or maybe wrap their arms around you and just pray for you. If you have anything you need prayer for, there are men and women up here at the front that would love to pray with you. We also have communion all the way around this room. Wherever you see a lamp on a table, the body and blood of Jesus Christ, the bread and the wine, are on those tables and everyone is welcome to take that as long as we have repented for our sins. We've asked God to forgive us of our sins. Now what that communion does is it reminds us that we're not alone. That as Paul said, even while we were still sinners, Jesus gave his life for us, he loves us. He's not gonna leave us hanging, he's not gonna leave us alone, that if we will just call on his name, The Bible says that Jesus Christ, when he resurrected and he ascended into heaven, he sent his spirit to be our comfort, our counsel. That not, not only does God walk beside me, God is in me, as close as he could possibly be. I encourage all of you in this room, if you feel the weight of life, just call his name. Father, Lord, I love you. I love this church, God, I know you love this church. Lord, keep your hand on us, God. Lord, let us know that we are not alone. Yes, we have an adversary, but we have a much stronger ally. God, rem remind us that we have the church, that we have brothers and sisters around us. Lord, let us be more dependent on you. Let us be humble, God. Lord, let us lean into you. Father, we love you. I pray that you bless this church and bless the men and women in it. Keep your hand on us, God, and guide us, Lord. We pray all these things in your son's name, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. I love you guys so much. You're welcome to help yourself. Thank you.